She was charged with murder in the first degree. Hi, this just feels so wrong. I don't know how much substance this letter has behind it. This is a demand letter. So all a demand letter is is, I mean, anyone can do a demand letter. Yeah, I'm a landlord also, and I agree with the previous caller. I think there's a lot of people who are just taking advantage of it. You know, under the Federal Care Act, seems like there have been some, you know, bureaucratic problems. I don't think it is fair. I mean, it, no, nobody's saying it's fair to the landlords. When there's a lot of news breaking, you can count on our legal roundtable to help you make sense of it. Guess what? There's a lot of news breaking. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. We'll dig into the horrifying case involving a Columbia woman who allegedly pressured her boyfriend to kill the baby he'd had with an ex-girlfriend. What does it take to face murder charges over texts you sent your boyfriend? A young woman is now going to prison, and that's even though she was not present at the scene of the crime. So we'll discuss how and why. We'll also talk about legal attempts to block St. Louis County's COVID-19 restrictions. The county executive's Republican rival sought to sue earlier this month. That wasn't successful. Well, we'll discuss the new demand letter, which was issued by a different group just yesterday. First, though, we want to check in on those moratoriums on evictions. Both St. Louis City and St. Louis County joined the state of Illinois in putting a halt to evictions during this pandemic. But some lawyers now want to overturn those protections. And in some cases, as it turns out, the protections aren't always protecting people. What's going on here? Well, our panel of expert attorneys is here to discuss what the law says and maybe where it falls short. First among them is Bill Freivogel. He's a journalism professor at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and he's also an attorney. Bill, welcome. Hi. And we're also joined today by Mark Smith. He's an associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University, as well as an attorney. So, Mark, welcome back. Thanks, Sarah. And last but not least, we're joined today by Susan McGraw. She's a professor at the St. Louis University School of Law and director of its criminal defense legal clinic. So, Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. So as mentioned, I want to start off today with this eviction moratorium. The presiding judges of both St. Louis City and St. Louis County have more or less halted evictions since the beginning of this pandemic. Susan McGraw, what gives them the right to do that? Well, Sarah, there's a couple competing factors. One of the problems is that the courtrooms aren't open. And if the courtrooms aren't open, people can't appear personally in front of the judge. There's been a setup where people can get on a Zoom call. Um, it's really inefficient. Um, it's really difficult for people to make their case to the judge. Most of these tenants are pro se, meaning they represent themselves. Mm. They don't have lawyers. So uh, many of them also don't have reliable access to Wi-Fi or cell service or something that would allow them to uh, make that court appearance. And if someone misses a court appearance, there's always the possibility that what's called a default judgment will be taken. They lose because they weren't there. 
So there's really an inequity of resources that are that's making this a difficult process. So this is really a case, um, in some ways, of logistics. The court just can't pull off the complications of bringing in the very people who would be most likely to need to defend themselves in these sorts of cases. Um, Bill, does that right extend indefinitely if they can't do these these court hearings in person for, say, another year? Does that mean landlords could theoretically be out of luck? Well, they have the judges have been extending it month by month, so I, I think they're they're taking care to, you know, not make this a, a perpetual, um, you know, court order. And so they, I think they, uh, they've just been doing on a on a one month or two month basis, depending on on the. Uh, the conditions. And, you know, meanwhile, both the city and the county are uh, trying to get up and running the the money that could help pay, help uh, tenants pay for their rent. Uh, you know, the, under the Federal Care Act, seems like there have been some, you know, bureaucratic problems, which I guess one would expect in trying to get that going. So that money only is beginning to flow. So it would seem as though uh, it would be uh, really unjust to be throwing people out of uh, their homes when the the money is available and on the way and just needs to be processed by the by the government agencies. So that I mean, when you say that, it, it all makes sense. And yet it sounds like some landlords are chomping at the bit. There's a property management company. They filed a petition Monday seeking a writ of mandamus with the Missouri Court of Appeals Eastern District. They're saying that St. Louis County's presiding judge doesn't have the authority to suspend evictions in these orders that were made in March and August. They're seeking a writ of mandamus. Mark, what's going on in this case? Uh, that, that forces uh, someone to do something. So, um, and, and, you know, you've had over in Illinois, in Madison County, there was, there was a, um, a moratorium. One of the judges or one of the circuits was still going ahead with this. These are all, many of these are based on the CDC came out with uh, regulations saying you should have a moratorium for public health reasons. That, that, that regulation is being challenged. I think there's a federal suit in, in Atlanta saying that, a number of things, uh, a violation of the Administrative Procedure Act, you didn't jump through the right hoops, saying this is taking power from state and local governments that the Fed shouldn't be doing, some other things. We'll see what happens with that. I think right now um, it would be tough to say, you know, whether it's Kansas City or St. Louis, you don't have the power to do this. Um, And also, just remember, it's not like these people, come January 1st when most of these end, they're going to owe all the back rent. So, you know, it's still there. It's just they can't be put out in the street in the meantime. So they still will, if they're under this eviction moratorium, they could still have to pay for all these months that they're there. Good. They will have to pay. Mm. I mean, like Bill said, they may get some of this federal money that's intended to help with this. Their moratorium doesn't say you don't have to pay rent. It just says you don't have to pay it until January 1. It's interesting, this case that has come up in the Eastern District, the Missouri Court of Appeals, um, they're saying that they had moved to evict some tenants, and these tenants hadn't paid in January and February. And then obviously everything came down in March. It sort of halted Mm -hmm. this process of trying to evict these tenants. Susan, it seems like these tenants might have had some spectacular luck. This was not something where they um, were affected here by the coronavirus in terms of being able to pay rent. They'd stopped paying it before that. And now these moratoriums 
Williams are giving them a little bit of a grace period here. Well, everybody deserves a little bit of luck now and again, Sarah. Um, <laughs> so you're in favor. <laughs> especially a lot of those folks. Yeah. Um, but it does not diminish the amount of money they are going to owe in the end. And, you know, I, for one, my concern is that when you're living hand to mouth, saving that money um, until January is going to be very difficult. So this might be a huge problem once this moratorium is finally lifted. Yeah, it might be. It might be. You know, one part of this eviction moratorium that I found pretty interesting is a case that came out of our own newsroom here at St. Louis Public Radio. Um, Reporter Eric Schmid noted that in Madison County, as Mark had referred to, um, people have gone ahead. Lawyers have filed at least 200 eviction cases there. Um, One got as far as the sheriff executing the eviction order. And when the reporter, Eric, uh, talked to the circuit court chief judge, this is Bill Mudge, he said the governor's order, and in Illinois it comes from the governor is where this moratorium came from. It's Subject to interpretation, it's been contradicted by other court orders and federal orders. Um, and he said that the courts have received various and sometimes, quote, ambiguous and conflicting eviction directives from the governor, the Illinois Supreme Court, and the federal government. He wrote, no orders entered in the past several months were done so with any purposeful defiance of these ever-changing directives or orders. Bill, should we feel sorry for the judges here? I kind of felt sorry for this guy hearing this statement. It sounds like just a muddle of people trying trying to solve this problem, but the judges don't even know which end is I don't, up. I don't feel sorry. I don't feel sorry for him at all. I mean, it's just, you know, he just doesn't want to stop doing what he's always, what they've always been doing. And that's, you know, throwing the tenants out. Uh, I think the governor is pretty darn clear that, that uh, in Illinois, uh, that, the, that he wanted a moratorium on, on evictions. What's and, the- you know, they just keep the machinery going. Uh, Mark, in terms of what's happening in Madison County, do you think that's fair that the judge should have known he wasn't supposed to do this? Well, I don't think he was doing it. I think it was other judges in that circuit. People beneath him. Yeah, and then once it came to him, he instituted um, a a, a moratorium. Um, There are exceptions, you know, for people doing criminal stuff. I think he's overstating how, I mean, I think the moratorium was pretty clear and there was something coming for Pritzker. But I think maybe it's a face-saving device, but at least now they seem to be doing the right thing and complying with the law. So um, I don't don't think it was as muddied as maybe he made it seem, but maybe he's looking out for these other judges. We also did have some breaking news this morning. The ACLU has filed a federal lawsuit. This challenges the order in Jackson County with their eviction moratorium. They say it permits eviction cases to move forward in violation of the new CDC order. So there's a whole lot of movement on this front. And I guess the the moral of the story is people need to be saving their rent so that when these things finally come due, I see Susan's, yeah, this is something you'd like to get across to anyone listening. (laughs) You're going to have to pay your rent eventually, unfortunately. Okay. And we are joined, of course, today by our legal roundtable. That's Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, Mark Smith of Washington University, and Susan McGraw of St. Louis University School of Law. We need to take a quick break, but we're going to come back shortly to continue this conversation, and we're going to talk about youth sports in St. Louis County and what gives people the right to shut those down. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. 
Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Today is our legal roundtable, and we're joined by three expert attorneys. That, of course, includes Susan McGraw. She's a professor at the St. Louis University School of Law. She's also the director of its Criminal Defense Legal Clinic. And uh, today we're also joined by Bill Freivogel. He's a journalism professor at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. And we're joined by Mark Smith. He's an associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University. And just before the break, we were talking about an eviction moratorium. Um, We actually have a caller who has a question or or comment about that, and I'm going to open the phone lines to him. Uh, Clint is calling from Illinois. Hi, Clint. You're on St. Louis on the air. Well, thank you for taking my call. Yeah, thanks Um, for joining us. Glad to do it. My my question is, I I have a rental property, and I have a tenant who has not been affected by any way, shape, or form by COVID. And he's not paying rent. And I still have to pay my mortgage. I still have to pay my property taxes. I still have to pay my insurance. How is this fair to us who work so hard? Well, Clint, I think that's a great question. I know a lot of landlords are feeling that way. I don't know if anyone on the panel um, is particularly interested in in taking this one. Um, I I don't think it is fair. I mean, the landlords, nobody's saying it's fair to the landlords. Um, I think the, the, the government has come in and said, but we don't want these people kicked out of their homes and spreading and possibly spreading COVID. So we're, we're doing this. I mean, um, the loss, you know, the law strives to be fair, but it's not always fair. And, and sometimes choices are made and that, I'm not suggesting that makes it right for landlords or anything like that. Um, you know, the, the landlords will still have an ability to, you know, sue for their, they're back rented everything, but if the person is judgment proof, they're not going to be able to collect. And um, and I think, you know, there as Bill mentioned, there are some federal programs they may be able to provide some help as well. But I think I think it would have been better if the federal government had maybe come in and provided some money directly to these landlords to to, to deal with this issue. Um, Clint, thank you for that call, and we're sorry you're dealing with this. Frankly, it, it surprises me that they can just put down an eviction moratorium like this, and it doesn't have any impact on what the banks have to do. Doesn't that feel like a missing piece of the equation, that the banks then don't have to give forbearance to a landlord? Or, or is that a bridge too far? Bill, thoughts on that? Well, no, it's a good point. And you know, I, I, I believe some of the proposals uh, have ha, had provisions like that in in them, but I don't think that those were in the final legislation. I'm really not uh, mm. uh, clear about the details of that, but but yeah, I do sympathize with the with the landlord who's in that position. I wonder I wonder if it would uh, get his tenant going if they if he were to point out to him as Susan has said, he's, they're going to owe a lot of money at the end of this period of time and. Uh, you know, maybe they don't want to have a huge amount they have to pay in, in a couple of months. Better to get begin paying. That's a good point. But I also, I was struck by what Mark said about people being judgment-proof. I think those of us outside the legal system, we think, oh, you get sued, you have to pay. It just right. doesn't work that way. Like, unless there's some sort of asset you can grab, it seems like many times it's, it's worth no more than the paper it's printed on. And it seems like landlords, in particular, they're running to people that don't own homes. Um, boy, they, they might definitely be in that boat. Um, I want to go back to the phone lines. Uh, Lee is calling from St. Louis. Um, Lee, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Hi, how are you guys doing? Thanks for joining us. Uh, what's your question on this? 
Yeah, I'm a landlord also, and I agree with the previous caller. I think there's a lot of people who are just taking advantage of it. You know, I'm looking at a tenant now, and I'm wondering, is she just going to get in there and not pay because of this moratorium? And then when you sue people and try and evict them, they don't have the assets to pay you anyway. And a lot of people just use that as an excuse to stay in your house for a few months and not pay. So I'm wondering, do we have any other alternatives? What happens if you have a, uh, a drug dealer in your property? Usually you can get an expedited eviction for those type of emergencies. Lee, thank, thank you for that question. I do believe that in many of these moratoriums, there is an exception for drug dealers. Um, there is. For criminal behavior, there's a few other things. Um, so there are some of those. But, I mean, you know, the, the, the people you don't want to tangle with when you're working with the law are either... Somebody who's super rich, like Bill Gates, who can just fight you forever and has all these high-priced lawyers, and then somebody who's judgment-proof because they just don't care and there's nothing you can do to them. And, and it's those of us in the middle who have not unlimited assets, but we have something to lose, and that sometimes feels unfair. Yeah, Lee, sorry for that. Um, an additional example of how this this has been tough for the landlords. I do want to move to our next topic, and this is something that it feels like everyone in St. Louis County has been obsessed with, um, and that is the topic of youth sports. St. Louis County has some restrictions that are more stringent than a big chunk of the country and certainly more restrictive than the rest of the state other than St. Louis City. Um, football and youth hockey games um, are still cur- uh, strictly prohibited. There was originally a challenge to this that it came from Paul Barry III. He's the Republican candidate who's running against County Executive Sam Page in November. He hired Al Watkins. People might remember the name Al Watkins. He was the attorney for the McCluskeys um, and some other prominent cases. Doesn't feel like this case made much of a dent in the legal system. Um, Susan, is this one you followed? Yeah, um, I did follow it. Um, mostly because I was interested in watching the protests. Um, It really didn't gain a lot of ground. You would have to, in essence, to win something like this to prove that these uh, requirements were arbitrary and capricious, that there were no real links between the rules and um, what they needed to accomplish. And when we're talking about public health and a communicable disease, I think that there's really quite a bit of leeway that's given um, to these guidelines. Yeah, and certainly uh, this challenge from Paul Barry III was not successful. Just yesterday, another um, legal uh, action came. It's a demand letter. This is from the Thomas More Society. They're a national uh, nonprofit law firm. Um, and their attorney is Mary Elizabeth Coleman, who is a Republican state representative here in Missouri. Bill Freivogel, did you get a sense they have any sort of claim in this letter as they're demanding that the county repeal um, some of these restrictions? Well, you know, they, they um, yeah, I think they have a claim to make. They're saying that, that the uh, county regulations were not promulgated uh, legally. But if, if you read the, if you read the demand letter closely, I mean, at one point they say, uh, even if youth sports guidelines were the type of regulation validly delegated to the county to promulgate, um, you know that they that, that these were not doing anything to try to keep uh, keep um, 
the disease out of St. Louis County. Well, uh, I, I, don't, I don't exactly follow that logic. It seems to me if you're if they're if they're acknowledging that maybe there is a legal case for them to promulgate uh, the guidelines, that that's sort of giving giving up the uh, uh, giving up the argument. You know that 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 Paul Barry uh, Al Watkins uh, filing was pretty unbelievable. I mean, I've hardly ever seen a a, a legal a, a legal document like that that had i mean they managed to not have any uh references to any cases <laughs> yeah was, this, uh, that but, one... but there was a lot of overblown you know rhetoric about jack jackbooted uh agents yeah that one felt kind of like um maybe they were making some political statements there i have to say when i read this one from from the thomas moore society i thought okay they're actually kind of getting into some of the legal framework here um which maybe makes it a more serious thing to discuss than than this uh earlier attempt but it's hard to know as, as somebody who's not a lawyer whether this is something that could succeed for example one of the things that caught my eye they're saying the county medical director came up with regulations these regulations now entail criminal penalties. They're saying it's forbidden by the Missouri Constitution for somebody like that, like just a medical director, to come up with something where I could end up getting threatened with jail time. Do you think an, an argument like that could have a chance of, of persuading a judge? Mark, any thoughts on that? Yeah, maybe. I mean, but there's still other um, mechanisms to enforce these rules. And so also, this is a demand letter. So all a demand letter is, is I mean, anyone can do a demand letter. I'm saying, I think what you're doing is wrong. You ought to stop. But it's not a lawsuit. And so they're going to have to bring some kind of lawsuit. They're going to have to prove they have standing. They're going to have to prove that the issue, and, and you know, if if you're not subject to it, it might be more difficult. Um, also, it seems like part of their complaint is this idea that, well, they're playing sports in some places and not in others. But that's kind of the nature of the law. I mean, the law is not precise always, and you have to make cuts sometimes. And and it and it feels really unfair, but you know the the law is not perfect. And so I think, I mean, by the time this they'll you know, fight this out, you know, the the football season's going to be over. So Bill Edwards. Uh, sort of taking a, a little bit broader uh, look at this, that there have been all sorts of uh, emergency applications to the U.S. Supreme Court over the past summer months, and uh, where pe where mostly religious groups have been challenging these various uh, order COVID orders uh, that you know restrict the size of gatherings or the size of religious uh, uh, assemblies. And uh, the court's been rejecting them by a five-four vote. Well, one of those vote, one of those five is no longer there. It was the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and so it's very possible that uh, that a justice uh, Bar uh, Barrett would join the um, uh, the four dissenters, and so those those could end up by the end of the year uh, going the other direction. What if we had a 4-4 court? Um, what happens if somebody's trying to challenge these, these COVID-19 restrictions and there is not yet the ninth justice who's seated? Well, a 4-4 court, the, the lower court ruling then uh, is in effect until something happens. So it would depend on what the lower court ruling was. And so it would be sort of 
chaotic because some of the lower court rulings would go one way and some would go the other, probably. Okay. A lot of this feels chaotic. You had mentioned these challenges as far as um, many of these were coming from religious groups. This letter from the Thomas More Society, not only did they have a, a Catholic orientation, um, but they're also representing private school kids specifically in this. Susan, does that give them a maybe better chance at success or, or open the door to some legal argument that a public school kid wouldn't have? You know, I don't necessarily think so. Um, and I think that the phrase they use, and correct me if I'm wrong, is private and Christian high schools. I think that's right. So, um, you know, I haven't seen who, if anyone is actually the plaintiffs that contacted the Thomas More Society um, to allege the specific harm. This isn't, you know, the Catholic high school um, sports association or something like that. So I don't know how much substance this letter has behind it and um, exactly how threatened people should be um, by the nature of this. And I, I, I just want to comment on something, you know, Bill talked about how places of worship um, are trying to file these emergency suits. And, you know, that is a right that is held so dearly um, in the United States is, is the right to worship freely. Um, the potential injury that is argued in this letter from the Thomas More Society is these kids might not get to audition their football skills for a college scholarship. So I just want to say they're really not on the same footing as those protesting the right to worship. It doesn't quite have those First Amendment grounds, that, that right to play football. <laughs> yeah, it's not, you know, an inviolate right protected uh, under the United States Constitution. Okay. Well, I had previously mentioned the McCloskeys, and careful listeners of this program may recall that last month I took somewhat of a vow saying that I was done talking about the McCloskeys on this show. And I think even at the time, people laughed at me and said I wouldn't be able to, to hold that. Well, they were correct. I have to talk about the McCloskeys again, but I promise I'm going to keep this relatively short. And that is the case against the McCloskeys. Um, it is proceeding. They continue to face these charges for brandishing guns at protesters. However, there had been some sort of summons or citations that was issued to some of the protesters who'd gone through the private street that the McCluskeys were on. Um, and they had said they'd heard from the city councilor's office in, in, uh, in St. Louis that they were being charged in some way for this. That is now going away. Um, so what do we make of this news? What, what has happened on this one, Susan? So, yeah, I want to explain a little bit about what it means to get a summons. The police can't um, file charges in court all on their own against someone. So if a police officer writes you a ticket, there's a process that ticket needs to move through in order to bring you into court. And in a summons, um, the police are giving you a ticket and saying, OK, I'm not going to arrest you but I'm gonna try and charge you. And if you get charged, here's the information. The city counselor's office in this situation looked at those tickets, looked at the charges the police brought in and declined to prosecute, um, which just means those summons aren't worth anything anymore. Um, they're just kind of pieces of paper that the people who are charged can keep or throw out or do whatever they want because 
there will be no filing in court of charges. Well, I got to ask, did the police get ahead of themselves by sending these summons to people? We hear a lot about police applying for charges with, say, the circuit attorney's office. Wouldn't that have been the normal mechanism here rather than just getting these shipped off to people in the mail? Well, I, I think that they uh, they could have actually arrested people is an argument, right? They could have taken people into custody and arrested them. That would have been the overreach. Okay. So you think um, they showed a, a decent following of procedure on this? Yes, I do. I think if you were going to take any actions, the summons was the correct action. Bill, would you agree with that? Well, I guess I would have thought maybe the police shouldn't have taken any action. Uh, I, I I don't really see a trespassing uh, yeah, I know the McCloskeys claim there's this was trespassing, but the Portland Police trustees certainly don't. And uh, you know, everything, all the pictures I've seen had them on sidewalks, and there's all these sort of legal back and forth about well, on a private place, you know, where there are delivery trucks and all sorts of uh, you know, and, and and public traffic along sidewalks is that. Is that really private? Is the sidewalk private property? I mean, I, I, I think I would have liked to see the uh, police be be more restrained. It's interesting when you see all the the crimes that happen in the city where people say they they're calling nine one one, they can't get someone to come out to their house. It's interesting to think of the time it would have taken the police to go through these photos that were in the news media and identify these seven people that they identified and go to the the trouble of of sending a summons. Uh, Mark, what's your take on this? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm not sure when they issued the summons, if they gave them to them at the time. It was later. later. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I think Mike Garvin and the city councilor's office did the right thing by dismissing them. They they investigated. So nobody can say, oh, they're, you're not taking it seriously. Um, yeah. yeah. In, with 2020 hindsight, I probably would not have given them summons. I, I agree with Bill, but I don't know that it's the end of the world. Yeah. And I think it all came out for the best. In this case, at least, our panel agrees. The yeah. city councilor's office uh, did the right thing. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, our legal roundtable today, uh, that was just Mark Smith speaking. And we're also joined by Bill Freivogel and Susan McGraw. We need to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about just a really horrifying case in, involving a, a murdered infant uh, in St. Louis City. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. You're listening to our Legal Roundtable, and today our guests include Mark Smith, an Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University. And that's in addition to Bill Freivogel, a journalism professor at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and Susan McGraw. She's a professor at the St. Louis University School of Law and director of its Criminal Defense Legal Clinic. We're particularly glad Susan is here with us today because we seem to have an unusual number of criminal-type cases to discuss today. And this next one, um, 
um, unfortunately does fall under that. Earlier this month, a young woman named Emily Paul pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter. Prosecutors say she persuaded her boyfriend to kill his three-month-old son. He'd had that son with another woman, and they apparently broke up at, at some point, um, and he got together with this, this girl, Emily Paul. She was originally charged with first-degree murder. Prosecutors ended up reducing the charges to get to a plea agreement. And now she's she's facing, uh, she's going to do four months in prison. Then she'll serve five years probation. And if she violates that, she could have up to 10 years in prison. This is a pretty serious sentence here. Um, Susan, in light of what she's accused of doing, do you think this is a fair sentence? Well, I don't know enough about the case to, you know, from a factual standpoint, I'll say this. She was charged with murder in the first degree. And the only punishment for that is either the death penalty or spending the rest of your life in prison without getting out. Whoa. So so what she was facing was really an enormous amount of punishment. Also, she was charged in a way that's called acting with another so that she was going to be held responsible both for what she did and for what the father of the child did. So so there was no way for her to say, well, just look at what I did, because they were charged with acting together. Um, in light of the penalty, in light of how little jury appeal a case like this would have, um, she decided to plead to something that carries a much, much lower sentence. Mm -hmm. And that's very common. To take that kind of plea in a case like this. Well, right. Because if you gamble with the trial and a trial is always a gamble and you lose, she'd never get out of prison. All of a sudden, four months looks like a really good deal. It's interesting. According to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, uh, prosecutors reduced her charge to manslaughter because her messages to Baker, that was her boyfriend, never explicitly instructed him to murder Aiden. But she did exert emotional pressure. Um, Bill, does this seem unusual where emotional pressure could end up leading even to involuntary manslaughter, much less first degree murder? Well, you know, there have been cases in other parts of the country where I mean, there was that case a couple of years ago where uh, um, uh, girlfriends uh, was sort of urged her boyfriend to go ahead with a suicide and, and she ended up being prosecuted. So, yeah, it's I mean, I, I do think the fact that she never explicitly uh, you know, told him uh, to kill the child uh, is, you know, one reason to 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 keep it away from first degree murder. Mm -hmm. uh, but but this this does seem seem uh, a little bit on the on the gentle side. It's interesting. Uh, she apparently was hounding him um, before the child's death. She said she didn't want to be a, a mother to two children that aren't mine. Um, and she called these sons a burden in the relationship. But her attorney, Joel Schwartz, he works with Scott Rosenblum's office, a, a very good attorney in town. She, he says that she truly never believed something like this would occur. Mark, do you think if she had decided to take that gamble, which, as Susan says, there's a lot of good reasons not to take that gamble. Is there possibly an argument here that this was just a boyfriend and girlfriend talking? This is her First Amendment right to, to free speech here. Yeah. Well, that, that would be their argument. And, and like Bill said, this is very different from that Massachusetts case. There, the, the woman told the guy, why don't you get back in this truck where he was trying to kill himself? There was nothing explicit like that. It's a horrible case. And people 
want to, um, you know, want to have uh, her to have more of a penalty. The, the the father is, I think, in prison for like 30 years or something. Mm-hmm. She was under involuntary uh, manslaughter, which would be like, you know, the classic example is if I shoot a gun in the air and it, it, it if the bullet hits somebody, you know, it's reckless, it's negligent. That That's more like it. Or I think this one also in Missouri would be like if I were drunk driving and killed somebody. So, you know, she wasn't forming the intent to kill. We don't know what's in her head, but they certainly couldn't prove that. Hmm. Mark, when you describe this as, as sort of reckless, you know, she's, she's putting a, a gun in the air, I guess to some extent that does kind of fit this. Like she's, yeah. she's behaving recklessly with a man who's in a, a yeah. mental state where then he did something right. horrible. Yeah, we don't know how much she knew about his mental state. I mean, it's hard to believe anyone would be capable of doing this. Um, she was complaining about him paying child support. Um, but, you know, but there was no evidence that she was saying, and you should eliminate this kid. Mm-hmm. Susan? Yeah, so under Missouri law, someone acts recklessly when they should know that it's practically certain a certain action will occur. It's the lowest mental state we have, right? I mean, it's when we talk about murder first, we mean they have thought about it and they intend to do the action. The mental state on reckless is very low. And I think the interesting issue is whether or not words, right, saying words would really establish that you're certain an action's gonna occur. Um, you know, we're not going to know because she took a plea, but it'll be worth following to see if the circuit attorney tries something like this again in the future. It is interesting, this Massachusetts case, which I believe Bill was referring to. Uh, this was a teen named Michelle Carter who basically harangued a young man into killing himself. I mean, this this case was terrible. And that was apparently the first in Massachusetts to consider manslaughter charges tied to texting. And this seems to be sort of advancing things even past that. Do you think we're going to start seeing more cases like this where instead of people having these emotional phone calls where we say terrible things to each other, we're leaving a paper trail every time we, we say something this terrible? That, that maybe people will be held account when they're having these kind of conversations with a loved one and, and spurring them on to do something this terrible. Um, Mark, do you see any movement towards that this, this could become more of a field of a growing field? I mean, I think I think they'll be pressured for prosecutors to bring these kind of claims. But I think, you know, it's, it's critical that she pled. And I think what Susan said at the beginning, this, this is a horrible fact pattern, uh, you know, and I bet her lawyer is saying, you don't want to get in front of a jury because... They're not going to care what the law is. All they're going to know is you were telling, and some some baby died, and you're going to go to prison. So let's cut a deal and go for this. I mean, I think there's a good chance she might have won on appeal, saying, "Hey, I, I never said this, so I don't even fit under involuntary manslaughter. I'm just telling them I don't like these kids being around, um, and there's no way I could have anticipated, and I that I would meet the meet this." minimum mental state standards. But I think, yeah, there's going to be pressure on prosecutors when you have this bad effect pattern. I want to go to the phone lines. I Um, I was going to say, I think there's no doubt there'll be a lot more cases involving social media like this. I want to go uh, to the phone lines. Karen is calling from Baldwin with a question for our panel. Um, Karen, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, this just feels so wrong to me and so lenient. And it's no surprise that she was represented by what some of us refer to as the scot-free 
law firm, that's who you want. Um, but my question is, would the sentencing possibly have been different if an adult, say like a wife or a spouse, had been killed? Because it seems like in America we still treat children like property, like chattel, and the murder of a child doesn't hold the same weight as the murder of an adult. And I'll take my um, res- the comments responses off off the air. Thank you. Like that was a great question from Karen. Karen, thank you for that. Does anyone have any thoughts on say that Emily Paul's boyfriend had had murdered his ex girlfriend because of this instead of this three month old baby? Uh, Susan, do you think there'd be a different outcome here in in terms of the sentence? Um, she might not have pled at all if it was an adult. Uh, an adult killing another adult is seen as a fair fight, right? That adult could have tried to defend themselves unless they were had some vulnerability. But when you're talking about a child, people have the reaction that Karen has, which is, look, don't tell me what the law is. Um, someone's going to pay because this child is dead. Mm-hmm. And Mark, I see you nodding. You, you agree with yeah, Susan's agree assessment. Completely. Yeah. Well, it's such a sad case, and, and I can see why it's um, ugh, just talking about it is, is so depressing. Let's talk about something else. Um, I want to talk about a case in Oregon County, Missouri. Am I saying that right? I've never been to Oregon County. I know they pronounce things differently in this state. Uh, governor Nixon, former Governor Jay Nixon, had engineered the purchase of roughly 4,200 acres along the 11 Point River. Well, now an Oregon County circuit judge has ordered the state of Missouri to sell parts of this plant state park. And it turns out it has to do with federal easements. This case, reading about this in the Post-Dispatch, I was pretty confused on what could possibly get a judge to this point. Um, Bill, any thoughts on what's going on on this case? Well, uh, you know, the, the judge, uh, I, 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 have to, I have to say, I also, you know, Sarah, you also sent us uh, Jay Nixon's uh, uh, op-ed uh, explaining why he disagrees with the judge. And I, and I even though I like to just disagree with Jay Nixon. I think he's sort of right on this one that the the judges, uh, you know, his his uh, his judgment is is not very detailed. Um, uh, hmm. uh, he does he doesn't look at the, the fact as Nixon points out. There are lots of other state parks where there are easement issues. I mean, I can't I can't imagine how he could you know have this order for the state to sell this. Uh, property without having looked at what's the situation in other state parks. Uh, so it's it's a very thin, you know, short, thin order without a whole lot of legal reasoning. I mean, basically, the judge basically says, um, you know, be, because there is a federal easement on some of the river through this where the park uh, would be, uh, the, that, uh, you know, that's going to keep the park from being able to uh, be constructed uh, the, the way it had been planned. And so therefore they have to sell the land. And it seems as though, uh, cor- at least according to Jay Nixon's uh, argument, that there are lots of uh, parts around the state where there are these easement issues that are, are easily worked around. Yeah, and the, the judge called the state's purchase arbitrary and capricious. I don't know that I've ever heard that applied to the actions of, of a state government before. Maybe I'm just not paying attention. Mark, what, what do you think about this one? Well, arbitrary and capricious, that, well, we, lawyers, we love to say that. Um, and that's anytime we want to say you did something wrong. So, you know, my kids now know that and they'll 
characterize my punishments of them as arbitrary and capricious. They've <laughs> That's a, a well. compelling argument from your kids. Yeah, exactly. You know, they, it, it just doesn't make sense to me, even after I read the judge's decision, because there's a half-mile easement along the ba- the river. So people could still use the river, float down the river. You just can't build stuff on that half-hour, and it's a park. So that that's kind of what you do with parks. You just leave them in a natural state. You know, it makes a big deal of, well, you couldn't put your boat in. But, um, I don't know, just, so, and who are you going to sell it to? That's that's what I'm not completely clear on. It seems like, I think people were upset when Nixon, this is lead money from the, and it was supposed, and this was not an area hurt by the lead industry. So some people were upset about that. I think some people were upset because there was some talk about naming it after uh, Nixon. And so, the Republicans were kind of worked up about that. But, I mean, this seems like a, a, a – I've never been there, but when you look at it, it looks like a beautiful spot. It looks like it would be perfect for a park, and I, I don't get this, and I hope the state would appeal this ruling. So, yeah, this op-ed that Bill mentioned that came from uh, Governor Jay Nixon, um, he's saying – he seems to, to feel that there's a chance the state might not appeal yeah. this decision, and he wants to really spur Attorney General Eric Schmidt – to file an appeal in this case, it seems like the appeal might come down to politics rather than the merits of the case on this one is at least what he's afraid of. Susan, do you think that's a valid fear? Well, it wouldn't be the first time it happened um, <laughs> in the state of Missouri or probably any other state. And and I think the plaintiffs, you say who would buy that land? I think the plaintiffs are the people who lo- own the land next to it. So oh. I think that's your answer for who would buy that land. Wow, that's is. I guess uh, that that question is now solved. Susan with the sleuthing. Bill, thoughts on this? Uh, well, I I, I just would uh, say I think the attorney general had said he wasn't sure whether he was going to was going to appeal, and I think there's a house of the legislature that voted it should get it should be sold, uh, and that was you know by a Republican majority. Just to back up uh, uh, Mark's comment about arbitrary and capricious. You know, Thomas Moore and uh, Al Watkins thought Page's, uh, <laughs> Page's rules on, on sports were arbitrary and capricious as well. So it's a well-worn, <laughs> well-worn yeah. phrase in the law. It, it sure sounds good. It doesn't always hold up. Um, <laughs> hey, I got a break in here. We have about three and a half minutes left of conversation, and we have some breaking news. This is breaking legal news, so it's a good thing I have my panel here. I might want to get your reaction to this. Our news partners at Five on Your Side are reporting that a federal judge has dismissed St. Louis Circuit Attorney's Kim Gardner's lawsuit against the city, police union, and others. This lawsuit accused them of a racist conspiracy to force her from office. U.S. District Judge John Ross wrote, quote, her 32-page complaint can be best described as a conglomeration of unrelated claims and conclusory statements supported by very few facts, which do not plead any recognizable cause of action. Now, that lawsuit alleged civil rights violations as well as violations of the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. And Five on Your Side reported that they are still awaiting comment from Gardner on the judge's ruling. This case got a lot of headlines, got a lot of national press, when it was filed. Mark, are you surprised uh, to see John Ross throw this out? No, no. And I can't remember the, I mean, I remember reading it and we talked about it in a previous show and it was, it was just a lot of conclusion, conclusory uh, statements. And I don't think it was, um, it it didn't seem to have anything legally that would, um, so I'm not surprised by that. Having said that, 
I mean, the, the Police Officers Association has has been. Um, I'm not defending all the stuff they've done, and I think it's been inappropriate. But um, I'm not sure it rises to a level of a federal lawsuit. Bill, you uh, you are a media critic at times. Um, do you think this was designed to get the national media coverage that it got, as opposed to actually advancing within the federal courts here? Well, it probably was designed to get national media coverage. Um, it, it, she was never going to win this case. The Supreme Court's made very clear it's a very hard, high bar to win a case like this. But as Mark says, I mean, there's, uh, and I would go, go, I guess, a step further than Mark. I mean, there, there's clearly, uh, you know, this is the Ku Klux Klan Act case. There's clearly a, a racial uh, element to what the uh, Police Officers Association has done. And I, and I think, you know, I, I think Gardner had some reason to feel as though the, the grand jury investigate, uh, the, the special prosecutor's investigation of her handling of the, of the case involving the former governor uh, you know, might have had a little bit of a racial element to it as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, but she wasn't going to win this case. And we have uh, talked on past roundtables about the idea of the attorney general trying to take concurrent jurisdiction from Kim Gardner and, and whether there's a racial element to that. Certainly some of our panelists have felt that way. We should note that went down in flames. Um, the, the House did not end up acting on that. So, Susan, I guess Kim Gardner, she she has basically been reelected. She still has to beat a Republican in November. Um, but it seems like maybe she still is winning, even though she lost this. Yeah. Um, you know, it's this suit was filed before the primary. And there are people who would say it was a way to get out her platform to the national media um, and certainly putting it in a federal lawsuit gives it more gravitas. Um, But in the end, there were not sufficient facts to even continue the case to go to a jury trial. Um, But it might have had the intended effect Anyways, she she won the Democratic primary. So unfortunately, we're out of time. But I want to thank our our legal roundtable for a terrific discussion today. Susan McGraw of St. Louis University School of Law. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Thank you. Thanks. And Mark Smith of Washington University. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org. Or you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hempel and Lara Hamden with production assistance from Aaron Dorr. The senior producer is Emily Woodbury, and the executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.